You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Your Pastor John gave us full permission to pronounce it any way we want. And in that small book toward the hidden in the back of the Old Testament, and a name that's difficult to pronounce, is a prophet who's got it all wrong. You see, the typical prophet was designed and intended to take God's word, receive it, and give it out. Say, this is what the Lord God said. This is what Isaiah was all about. All his visions he would take. This is what Ezekiel saw, the wheel within the wheel. He would then report in to the people of God and go, you won't believe what I saw. This is the exact opposite of Habakkuk. Buried on the back of the Old Testament, Habakkuk is tired of it all. Habakkuk is worn thin. He sees evil. He sees frustrations. He sees people suffering. He sees a nation about to overcome them. He takes the message to God, and we get to listen in. And he does so with a certain sense of insolence. Now, as best we can determine and understand, Habakkuk is a priest doing his duties. So there's a certain degree and amount of that should be accompanied. But he goes to God in a sense saying, what in the world are you doing to me, to us? So the second question in the silent sort of reflection is, an irreverent, or is that an invitation, or, or is that by God's invitation? Is he being irreverent and speaking out of place and out of turn? Should God say, young Hamilcock, sit back down and I'll talk to you about this? Or is he listening and following God's calling and command? Is he doing what the Lord would intend? Is he acting in a way God would find pleasing and a blessing? Is he doing what he's supposed to be doing, or is he stepping out of line and getting all ticked? What I hope to be able to illustrate today in the message is a number of things, and one of them is Habakkuk is right on target. The what he's asking, the way he's asking, and why he's asking. He steps up to God and says, we got to talk. And in that way, continues on with the lesson. And from that conversation, we get these incredible truths. A little bit more backstory. If you've you figured out that I am not Pastor John, I am simply not that looking. So well, <laughs> he will be back next Sunday. He's over there at the student retreat and leading uh, some college kids through that. So thanks be to God. We will pray for the blessings of their conversations and their relationship building. So I'm doing that. But he sent me this text a long time ago. And uh, in fact, we were gone. We were up north, who knows where. We traveled a lot. And I think we were in northern Wisconsin someplace. And I got a text from him that says, here's what you're preaching on on the last Sunday of October. So it sounds good. I like it. And I said, anything that we'll do with the Reformation? And he said, just preach the text. <laughs> All right, John. John's the boss. I'm, I'm the subject teacher. I'm going with that. Wouldn't you know it? The text is all about 
Reformation. No. <laughs> All right. What is the Reformation? Kind of backwards. If you're not familiar, if you're not a Protestant Christian or haven't been a Christian for very long, the Reformation was both a socio-cultural and religious phenomena that literally changed the world, but I'm getting ahead of myself. What we're going to find buried in the back of the Old Testament in a prophet who spoke up and out of turn is this short five-word key phrase that is spoken to the prophet that changed his world, the world, and the people to whom I have ministered over my years. Just the way God loves to act. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to find out what is God doing? Why is he doing it? How does he want us to approach him? Why does he want us to approach him that way? What's the blessing and the benefit from doing, putting all that together? Thank you, God, for the opportunity. Let's go to God in prayer because we're going to have to pray this one through. Thanks you. Thank you, Father, for this Buried Habakkuk in your scriptures. We can find him on our phones by plugging in Habakkuk, but when you turn to the paper Bible, he's harder to find, a few pages in the back of the Old Testament. And yet in the midst of that, it's exactly the way you work. You give treasure where it will be least expected and discovered, and that treasure is found in this book and it's changed my life, affected my ministry. And I would offer to you, Fathers, your spirit enables help each person here to understand what an impact and for them. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Next. Do I have this screen? Can I get that screen? Thanks. So here's Habakkuk 2, 2 to 4. He says, so to pick up from last week, ushered or given to his, given his complaint before God and says, all right, talk to me. What's going on? And he says, here, write my answer plainly on a tablet so that a runner can carry the correct message to other. Write this down. Now, God says that to a few people in a few places. He says that to John during the book of Revelation. Oh, you're going to want to write. It sounded a little bit like my seminary professor as I sat there sort of wide-eyed in Hebrew class going, uh, Carl, write this down. But looking at me, they could tell I was going to forget it. The vision is for a future time. It describes the end and will be fulfilled. It's, if it seems slow in coming, wait patiently for it. It will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked. Here it is. Here's our golden nugget. But the righteous will live by their faithfulness. Many versions read, by their faith to God. The righteous will live by faith. There's a bunch of problems I have with that text. Number one is the vision is for a future time. So essentially what Habakkuk is learning from God is that uh, we're going to fit into your world as neatly, as nice as you want, but you're part of a bigger plan. It's all part of God's plan. It's time to describe the end and will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently. Can I talk to you for just a second here? 
the, yeah, the, the, the thing that I hate when God says to me most, you know what it is? Wait a minute. Now, the problem that wait a minute really bothers me is because in perspective, yeah. right? Yep. A thousand days is like a day gone by and a day like a thousand years. So when God says to me, wait a minute, Carl, I'm going, oh, that could mean anything. Because in eternity, we've learned that there is no time, maybe no space. I don't want to get too far off track here. But all that is so phenomenal. Like God says, wait, what is he doing in all this? He's saying, there's going to be vision. I'm going to give it to you. It's going to fit in in a certain place and time. But here's your calling, Carl Habakkuk. Wait for it. So what we're going to talk about today, and what we're going to hope the Lord would discover, is that God has given us clarity of hindsight. All Habakkuk would was, I'm, I'm thinking now, again, this is my imagination, as warped as it might be. Habakkuk, when he hears the Lord go, wait for it, he goes, oh, no. He's got problems. Babylonians are beating down their door. They are on their way. The people of God are being run over. Evil is rampant. And you're telling me to wait for it? Such is the nature. And here's the reasons. The righteousness of faith. Questions that are today are, what kind of answer to this injustice and inequity in the world is that? The righteous will live by their faith. How is that an answer? What does it say about living in challenging times today and what does God it down, write, the, write down the revelation and wait for it? That's what we're going to jump off. That's what we're going to try we go together. Imitations by I kind of hinted at this already. Now it's clear that we should approach God with reverence and awe. That's no question about that. But are you familiar with the fact that God also calls on us to challenge him? That what Habakkuk was doing was actually something that is part and God's people to step up and challenge God? I found a prayer that I want us to review. This is Jesus teaching in the New Testament the disciples, how to pray. He gives them the Lord's Prayer, and we know that. The template is how you pray. But then he follows He offers this explanation. He says, who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have set before him. And he will answer from within, bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Okay? The friend is going, go away. It's late. Leave me alone. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his person, he needs. And I tell you, Ask and it will be given to you. Have you heard this before? Seek and you will knock and it will be opened to you. For who 
asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. That word persistence is, is actually shy of the depth of meaning of the word from the original language. Some versions will actually read audaciousness. Because of his audaciousness, it's a word that's rarely used in the New Testament. In fact, I think it's only used one or two times. Audaciousness, boldness, impudence. Where in the world have you and I learned to go before God with boldness that bordered on impudence, audacity? How dare you do this? And yet, it's exactly the way that we are instructed to pray. And then Jesus kind of wraps up that section with the disciples who are sitting around. Now, you've got to imagine the disciples, right, are going absolutely jaw-dropped because what Jesus is telling them is approach God in a different way. And seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. The answer, the, what you need to know behind the scenes there is these verbs are in the present tense. And the present tense means keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. There's a story called the story of the Syrophoenician woman who asked for healing for her child. Right? And she follows behind Jesus and keeps calling out, and Jesus does what? Ignores her point where the disciples are going, will you please send her away? She's driving us crazy. Having just spent a number of weeks and times with grandkids, I have some sense of what that is like. <laughs> Gee, that's right. A preacher is born. Speak it. All of this context is to say, Habakkuk, when he comes up and goes, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Do you see what's happening? Aren't you eternal? It's the same as the man who said, look, I know you're in bed, but I'm not going away till you give me a loaf. Because he would be violating social norms by not having something to host for his friend. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. There are times when Jesus intentionally does not answer our prayers right away. There are times when he wants us to wait, wants us to persevere, wants us to buck up with some audacity to come before him. Why would he do that? I was hoping you would ask. I lost my clicker. As we challenge God, our perspective shifts. Our personal perspective traps us. The study of phenomenology. All right, a brief detour here to kind of get some context. Original sin has given to me only one perspective, Carl's. You know how this is true with you as well. So imagine with me, for example, that your four people are standing on an intersection, and there's a fender bender that happens in the middle of the intersection. And the police officer comes around and he's asking each of the four people what happened. How many versions of what happened are you going to get? Four. Now, only one fender bender happened, 
but four perspectives. Why? Because each person's angle and the way they saw the lighting, each person's history, somebody was in an accident once before, and it's given them a sensitivity to what happened and how it happened. Everything about them is trapped in their perspective. All they have is their perspective, and the police officer or the judge has now got to try to make that come together. Don't answer this one either. How many of you have ever been in a cantankerous church voters meeting? <laughs> I know I have never been either. So, And what do you have? People stepping up to the mic or voting or passing to make sure that things go according to their plan. I'm actually certified something, I'm a certified bridge builder. I haven't done it for years and years now, but a bridge builder is one who tries to bring uh, healing to congregations which are divided. I have actually walked out into the parking lot and seen people being restrained from being in fights after voters' meetings. Why? Because it was coming from their perspective. Anybody who's led a congregation or been a part of a congregation movement or a group knows that that's the difficulty. That's the struggle. I often said to congregations when I was serving them, I said, you know, when we go to voters meetings or congregational meetings or council meetings, I am less concerned about your opinion. You can see, I am more concerned about your opinion about what God wants us to do. You see the difference? Because the, what God wants us to do is a whole lot harder to come to than what we want to do. And by the way, just sort of parenthetically, it was an aside, there's no extra charge for this part, is that that's the struggle with congregations, congregations and groups and, that come together. The more there is a consensus of a calling for God and we begin to see things through God's eyes, the more momentum, the more delight, the more joy, the more hope, the less we're going to, because congregational meetings and groups that gather like that are not democrat, dem democratic. It's not a matter of getting the most votes. It's a matter of getting it according to God's calling and plan. So as we challenge God, our perspective shifts. We come to him from our own perspective. Why would you allow this evil? Why would you allow this cancer? Why would you allow this accident? Why would you allow this diagnosis? Why would you do that? It all is coming from our perspective. It's not as though our perspective is bad. It's just narrow. Faith frees us and equips us with God's perspective and point of view. Bingo. You see, that's why faith needs to be planted inside of you. That's why we have baptismal waters. Because I was born in original sin, and people go, oh, that baby didn't sin. When I was born, I had one perspective, my own. In a, a nation or a democracy where self is elevated and raised as the most important thing, I get it. But in the Bible, self isn't the most important thing. What's the most important thing? God. And making that shift is the whole key. That's how we're baptized, so that we're given a spirit that is God's spirit, that is 
begins to transform our perspective and our point of view and to begin to see God working. That's why we're given bread and wine in blood. And that's why we're going to do that on a regular basis here at Thrive. Because the, I keep slipping back into Carl's perspective. And God says, ah, take bread, take wine. Let me strengthen you in my perspective, my vision, my mission. So that the more that happens, when he says to me, write it down, Carl, write it down. I go, okay, all right, good. And then wait for it. I'm less irritated because then I get a little sense of, okay, God is up to something and I'm playing a part in it. And my responsibility is to wait. If I'm impatient, it's because it's not happening according to my timetable. If I'm ready, I will let God deal with his, and, his, and we can see this unfold. But we get as a chance in history to see this. The righteous will live by faith. Let's do a deep dive on that. The righteous. The Hebrew word for righteous is to be a person in accordance with a proper standard. You see why it's important to come from God's perspective? Because we want his perspective of righteousness, not yours, not Mary Louise's, not mine. We want God's perspective on what, what's righteousness. To live, a simple verb, to live will be alive. To heal or recover from a wounded position. My wounded position is my own perspective. I can't escape it. And that's why I need a redeemer, good Christian friends, is because I, I even as I preach my own perspective, I can't escape it. I have to be rescued from it, and so do you. Faith, trustworthiness, steadiness, dependable, having security, and truth. These are the gifts of, gifts of God and why this scripture, the righteous will live by their faith, buried in the Old Testament minor prophets of Habakkuk, found its way to the rest of the world and changed it. And changed it. So this is what I think God had in mind when he told Habakkuk, hold on, wait, wait, wait. Oh, I'm, put, I'm piecing this together, Habakkuk. You're going to love a view of this. You're not going to see it until eternity, but you're going to love the puzzle I'm creating. And now let's watch what happens. Well, first of all, it was picked up by St. Paul. So this five words was picked up by St. Paul. He said, to, in his first time he said it in Galatians 3, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? By the way, one of Paul's first letters, and he's mad. Oh, is he mad? <laughs> he is so mad. Who has bewitched you? He's never used that word before. It's the only time it appears in the New Testament. Paul is really ticked off. What's he ticked off about? Well, he went and founded this church, gave them God's mission, God's perspective, and somebody filed in behind him and said, no, 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 you really need to follow the laws and, leg and legacies that are part of that, and undid all he did. Took it back to their own perspective of, if you want to fulfill God, if you want to please God, here's what you got to do, and you got to do it right and well. Paul was so ticked off. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. Paul's once again flipping perspective. If that's your perspective, you can't get stuff done. It's what God's doing in you. 
Paul then, the next letter he wrote in line that used this is from Ephesians. And this is a bit more popular for many Christians. You know this one. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Your perspective doesn't come from you. That's the problem. Your perspective comes from outside of you, from eternity. If you take a look at all of the images and pictures that are present in the book of Revelation, you see the temple and God is at the center. And God is the light because he is the perspective. He is the point of view. People will say to me, Pastor, I've got a bunch of questions. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask them. I'll go, no, you're not. Because the millisecond, which is, there's no time, the, the, it, when you arrive, you'll begin to say, oh! You'll see everything from God's perspective and go, why didn't Carl tell me? <laughs> you will have no questions. You will just wonder, well, why did John let Carl preach? <laughs> That's the point of view. Or this one from Romans. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In the book of Romans, one of the last letters Paul wrote was uh, voluminous by his standards and is very well organized as a theological treatise. And as he launches that theological treatise in chapter 1 with this, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, do you think <laughs> that Habakkuk had any idea all this was in place. Now, with you knowing that this is about to change Paul's world, change Paul's life, and begin to distribute itself globally to billions, do you think Habakkuk had any clue that that's what God had in mind when he said, Habakkuk, wait for it. <laughs> I'm going to pull this together. It will come out in its appointed time, and you ain't it. Just wait. God, even bigger than this. There was an impact on Luther and the Reformation. This has such a big impact. It was Luther's tower experience. Before we do all that, God, I want to back up. Luther, the story goes, was a monk seeking a way to please God. And could not find it, could not ever know for sure and find any certainty on whether or not God would be happy with him. Couldn't do enough, couldn't be enough, couldn't go enough, couldn't stop, and just couldn't enough, enough. And, you know, you and I have been there, right? Sometimes it's with our parents, sometimes it's with our family. You're always struggling. How do you know when enough is enough? How can you tell when you, you've made them happy? How do you tell? That's often the issue related to addictions and people who struggle with that is that, there's always the need for more cover-up. Oh, it's just it's a horrible cycle. Luther, in his struggle to try to find out when is enough enough, tripped across the verse and went, the righteous shall live by faith? Are you? It's that simple? It's that profound? It's that clear? It's that, that's it? And the Reformation was born. Do you think Habakkuk had any clue? All that was about to occur when God said, ah, write this down, and then wait. I'm putting it together. Then this slide here. Luther's, it's called Luther's Tower Experience when he said he literally was reborn. Huh. What are the key tenets? Luther said, justified by grace through faith. That's number one. If somebody wants to ask you, 
we've got all these Christian churches. Is there a one common denominator? You say, you bet there is. Justified by grace through faith. The righteous will live by faith, baby. That's it. Whether you're Presbyterian or Lutheran or whatever flavor you have for the day, it doesn't matter. If you've got that down, that's the point. Completely dependent on God, sola gratia. The Bible alone was authoritative, solia scriptura. These are things that came out of the Reformation. Elevated individual conscience and unalienable rights. Priesthood of all believers made leaders of the non-nobility. This was the first time in history non-nobility people, people who didn't have the right heritage, could take up leadership roles. So it began to change not just theologically but socioculturally. It eroded the belief in the divine monarchs, Luther's famous phrase, there is no king but King Jesus. Oh, the king wasn't happy about that. <laughs> Can you imagine the uproar? Rise of literacy, education of the common man, catechism, which if you've grown up Lutheran, you know something about catechism and breaking down God's word into digestible pieces. Catechetical study was born. The birth of democracy. I put Latin down there just to re kind of refresh my seminary training, which happened, oh, centuries ago. <laughs> birth of democracy, coius regio, eos religio, his own religion, his own region. Regions began to be defined. You could be your religion in that region, and I'll be my religion. It was the birthplace of democracy where we begin to vote on that. All this and, and so much more was born of God telling Habakkuk, well, write it down, wait for it. Here it is, here it is. The righteous will live by faith. The perspective changes. Now, Habakkuk, it's not about you. It's not about what's going on with you. It's about my plan for you and for the world and for all of my children. Oh, this is going to hurt. It's not about you. Time magazine. <laughs> when they listed the, the most influential people in the last thousand years, <laughs> Time magazine put Martin Luther number three. Who was he beat by? Isaac Newton and Johann Gutenberg. Okay, pretty good company. I took a certain amount of joy finding out that they rated Martin Luther number three and Albert Einstein number eight. <laughs> I don't know why. I, just, I enjoyed that. My point? That what Luther discovered all can be found right there. The righteous shall live by faith. Words that God gave to Habakkuk when Habakkuk approached God with impudence and said, what's going on here? He said, all right, you want an answer? Here we go. And he began to shift his perspective from his concerns and cares to his God's own calling and mission. Do you think Habakkuk could have possibly had in mind that we're right here on this Sunday morning recognizing Martin Luther, head of the Reformation, as recognized third most influential person by a secular, fairly liberal magazine. And Martin Luther's entire movement was born and based on that one phrase, the righteous shall live by faith.
You know what? You know why that's important? Because it comes down to all oh, that's theology, sociology, and we're going to determine where it should land and end. Dad Hill facing death and not feeling saved. Mary Louise and I got married very young. We were living in Gainesville, Florida, going to the University of Florida, and her dad was struggling against lymphoma. Lymphoma that today could be cured um, and dealt with much more readily than it was back then, but he was 52. 50, when he was diagnosed, he was 52, died two years later, 54. So God gave us the opportunity to be there. We were, Mary Louise and I met in Austin, Texas, but we moved to uh, Gainesville, Florida. She was pre-enrolled in the physical therapy program, and her mom and dad were there. And her dad had been diagnosed, so it all seemed to be a wonderful idea. So we moved, we didn't move in with them. We moved to Gainesville. She went to University of Florida, and I had most two, the most two fun years of my college life ever, but that's another story, or maybe never. But I was married, I was good, I was good. So her dad came down with lymphoma, and obviously as a family, we're ministering, we're loving, we're praying, we're keeping company. I'm learning to play the Hill family card games, and I stink at them, and I'm ticking him off, and it's being an in-law and all that stuff. So we're forming a relationship, and the man who was big, oh, I don't know, probably, what, 6'2", 6'3", 250 pounds, began to whittle away as the cancer ate away at his body. He was super proud that Mary Louise married an almost preacher. <laughs> he really was. And their pastor, Pastor Bob Bozalski, told us that was one of the proudest moments of Dad Hill's life was when I was on my way to the seminary and Mary Louise married a minister almost, or a minister wannabe or something. But what that did was that, that placed me in an odd spot. Because when theological issues come up, everybody turned and looked at me. I go, wait a second. I haven't been to seminary yet. I didn't study. I'm studying psychology at the University of Florida. And I've been two softball leagues, so I'm not really studying so hard. So... They want to know. Well, here's the issue that hit our family. Dad Hill was going through whatever his treatments were going through. It was rugged, as you may have been through people who are doing that. It was rugged. And we were anticipating beyond the planet that much longer. And he wakes up and says to Mary Louise's mom, my mother-in-law, Norma, I don't feel saved. Well, a ripple of panic. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, that's okay if I feel that way, but I don't feel like God's present with me. I don't feel like I'm on the right track. I don't feel I'm going to heaven and I'm on my way to the grave. Oh, and everybody kind of turns and looks, Carl scared me to death. What do I say? I'm an in law. I love Dead Hill. He doesn't feel saved. What do I say? How do I, what do I look up? There was no internet family and friends. <laughs> or there was, but I think it was owned by the military or the University of Florida or something. I don't know. So it wasn't easily Googled. We discovered together in prayer, conversation, and scripture search 
the dead, no matter how you feel, no matter whether cancer is wrecking your brain and your spirit, your cells are disappearing, dying, and you're losing weight at a horrible rate and pace, it doesn't matter because your righteousness has been determined by your faith. You are saved, not because of who you are, but because of who God is and because of who he did, what he did in Christ. You could feel it was palpable. Oh. Do you think Habakkuk had that in mind <laughs> when God said, hold a second, I'm piecing this together. There's going to be a 54-year-old man in Gainesville, Florida who's going to need this news real badly. But it doesn't depend on his perspective. It doesn't depend on how he feels about heaven. It doesn't even feel if he understands it. it. doesn't feel if he's on track on mission, if he sins that day or not. He's going to need to hear this words that apart from him, from my love and my perspective and my mission, it doesn't matter how he feels. He's with me. He's in eternity. He will be there because of me, not because of how he feels. You get that? See how that's so powerful? See why God said to have good, right, 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 I hear your complaints. Write this down. Wait for it. Because it's going to have a tremendous impact. Matt Kell was struggling with glioblastoma at age 37. I'm only going to start this story, then I'm going to finish it, because the Habakkuk worship series, this is on two of four. John's going to be back next week for three, then I'm going to wrap up with four. And it's my joy to wrap up because I used the wrap-up of the book of Habakkuk to address this issue, but I wanted to open it up for you so that you can kind of get a sense of it. I had just taken a call to... Um, St. John in Rochester, Michigan. Big church, big school, big operation. And on the call committee was Matt Kell, age 37, had those age boys. And um, he walked into my office. Um, we, we, we became friends because we both sort of had a wry, sardonic sense of humor. We both thought we were better in basketball than we really were. And we used to play each other. and. So we developed a good friendship. Within about a year's time, when I was there, he was not only a member but a good friend. He comes and sits in my office and could barely sit down without starting to cry. I go, Matt, Matt. He found a lump on his thigh. The reason why that was alarming is because only a few years earlier, he buried his dad, who'd been diagnosed and died with glioblastoma horrible cancer that produces tumors that are encapsulated inside the body. And what was worse than that was before his dad was his dad. And before his dad, it turns out that they would discover, I don't know at what point in the story they discovered it, that it's a genetically induced cancer, a missing protein or something I would offer. And this could be the first sign he's got it. He's got boys that age. I don't remember. They're in our school, in our preschool. 
And he came to me to come before God. He says, I'm coming before God. And you're not going to like the way I'm talking to him, Carl. So talk to me. I'm telling God, this is not right. My dad and grandpa got this at a more elderly age. I'm 37. I got little boys. It's not right, I told God. And he was mad at God. And then he was guilty. He was mad at God. Then he wanted to know the pastor's opinion and how to offlay the guilt and speak to God in a non-mad way. And I, I got nothing for you, Matt. I got nothing for you. There's my parishioner and my friend on my seminary training. You know what I'm going to do with you? We're going to get mad together. We're going to go before the throne and go, this can't happen, Lord. This is not right. You cannot steal this man away from his children and his family in the prime of his life. Yeah, he's not as good as he says in basketball, but that shouldn't matter. <laughs> and we joined together in getting mad at God. We looked up in precatory psalms. We looked up that verse from Luke 11 about uh, teaching us how to pray. And then one day, I was paging almost randomly through my paper Bible. Everybody ever seen the paper Bible? There, about that thick. And, and I, I was going through my paper Bible and across the prophet Habakkuk. And I just read a couple of lines. I go, oh, yeah, Habakkuk's mad like a man. And I read Habakkuk, and I called Matt. I said, we got to talk. And we did. And the rest of that story will be in week four. <laughs> hey, miniseries aren't the only ones that get away with it. <laughs> because it's not, we're not that far along in Habakkuk. I'm not trying to do it to tease you forward. I'm trying to say... The latter part of Habakkuk supplied the answer that allowed me and Matt to walk together and discover God's perspective. The short version of that, if you can't make it in, in two weeks, is that through a long chain of events, and we'll cover some of those chain of events, and through a long chain of events, it turned into a Hallmark movie. <laughs> It almost makes me giggle to think, say that out loud. And that Hallmark movie came from a book, The Color of Rain. That Hallmark movie was, is, well, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't looked at that stat for a year or two now. At one time was the most watched Hallmark movie ever. Do you think... Habakkuk had that in mind when God told him, wait for it. I'm putting this together. And the righteous will live by faith. It's going to change the hearts and lives. No, no. It's going to change the world. And it did. In Jesus' name, amen. That righteous will live, I, I, I could have gone there. The whole point of that was, yep, Habakkuk, 
when God seems unfair, it's usually because we're going from our own perspective.